We're going back to Revelation 6 to talk about this fifth seal that is being opened. I'll begin reading with verse 9, Revelation 6. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So here we are again in a very strange, very powerful imagery going back and asking the question, okay, how does this relate to the opening of a scroll that held on it a redemptive plan? Again, under the attempt to try and ask ourselves, what does this mean to us right now? What does this revelation bring to us right now? And I won't argue or wouldn't even disagree with someone who says that this is all stuff that's going to happen in the future. But for me, I don't have to set that aside as truth for this to also to speak to us right now about us. Because every time I study the Bible, what I discover is that there's much more there than I ever imagined, and it usually does not disagree with what I already know. It just goes deeper. So the imagery here, this is unusual stuff, and I will attempt to use the scripture itself to understand what this imagery means. The first thing that kind of shocks us is it says that the souls are under the altar. What are we talking about here? we imagine that this altar is an altar like we have in church, we will totally miss the meaning. We also probably need to recognize that there's not going to be an altar in heaven because what happens here won't happen in heaven. What had to happen in the Old Testament won't be necessary in eternity. So what is it talking about? Going back and if I ask, what's probably the most obvious answer about this altar? Well, it takes us back to the tabernacle. Everything that was designed in the tabernacle in the Old Testament was designed to be a picture of heaven, a picture of something yet to come. All the colors, all the furniture, the layout was designed to bring them into the moment where they would enter into the presence of Jesus. The sacrifices that were made. All of those things from the tabernacle were designed to give a picture of something eternal. Don't think it's inappropriate to ask ourselves, what altar is this? For us to go to the tabernacle and recognize that there, there were two altars, the brazen altar and the altar of incense. The altar under discussion is the brazen altar where the animals were killed, for there was never any blood shed on the altar of incense. When you begin to imagine that what the altar that the souls are under, the imagery takes us to that altar, there should be a little more understanding and the imagery should be a little closer for us recognizing what happened on that altar. The sacrifices were made. Lives were taken. And blood would run through the altar and be under the altar. The brazen altar had a bronze grating on it so that the blood could run down under it. In Leviticus 17, the correct translation in that particular verse is that 
the soul, life, is in the blood. So we get this connection. John saw the souls of those who had been slain and who were underneath the altar. It kind of leads us to the next question. If we have the altar right, and it is the brazen altar that we're seeing here, and it's relevant to you and I today, we understand that the sacrifices were being made as a payment for sin for the people who would come year by year. We know that that sacrifice was made by Jesus. We read about it earlier in Revelation when they saw in chapter 5 Jesus, the lamb, as if he had been slain. When we get the, the connection through the scripture, it's a little easier for us to recognize that the ones who have been slain are the people who have been slain or sacrificed because of the word of God. This isn't stretching. This is simply saying that's what the scripture says. I saw under the altar the souls, the lives, the blood of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Whoever this is, whoever has been slain, has been slain because of their witness to the word of God. What is supposed to happen to us? When we start getting this connection, okay, what does this say to me right now? What does the Bible promise us if we preach the truth? The part of our lives we don't talk about much. There's not much teaching that comes out of this because we don't like the topic. The truth is, suffering should be a part of our story. I would tell you, and most of us would readily admit, if we took what we know to the extreme, if I started tomorrow going to Lubbock and standing on a street corner and preaching this and teaching this, even if I did it more kindly than some of the people who stand on the street corners and do, when we see the ridicule and we see the pressure and we see the anger that they display and, and, we, and it's like we're embarrassed by them, do you think there would be any persecution? Certainly. But because we have decided to do our preaching and to do our teaching in situations that are much safer, we don't suffer much. But the more we step out of that, I'll give you an example. I have very strong feelings about this. I won't express them. I just can tell you that my feelings about this are very strong. I have a great deal of confidence, trust in Bill Johnson. I'm not saying by that statement that I agree with everything that he teaches. I'm not saying that I agree with everything that happens in his church in Redding, California. I haven't been there and I can't make that assessment. But... I believe by the truth that he teaches, and it is some of the most profound stuff that I have ever heard. The healing conference that I sat in in Austin was led by the two men who lead the healing ministry in Redding, California. That's where I heard and began this journey of learning that John, when he was calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was saying that because he learned something before the rest. That the greatness in our life is not saying to God, we love you. It's finding within the human capacity the ability to let God fully love us. I learned that in that healing conference. Truth being revealed. Truth being transferred. But you type in Bill Johnson in Google and the first things you're going to get are these slanderous things about him being a false prophet. You better have a lot of security in God to make that kind of a statement about anyone. You better have something that you're repeating that God has spoken to you 
because you better not express it as a thought or recklessly because you're persecuting someone, not the world persecuting them. That's the Christian world. And it doesn't bother him, I don't think, at all. When we began to teach beyond what we have felt to be safe from this word, and I don't teach out there quite a ways, but I don't get much persecution for it. I probably get less in the members of the church. Again, that's the reason why we don't have a website that allows us to get feedback. I don't want the good feedback. I don't want the negative feedback. It's not that I can't take it. It's I don't want to be affected by it. I want to preach what God gives me to preach. And I don't want any other words or any other voices in my head. Somebody wants to talk to me about a sermon, they can come to my office and I will be glad to have that discussion. But I'm not going to take the random comments of somebody on the computer who is pleased or displeased. We can be affected negatively by both. So I just don't want to do it. But we have to be careful because when we begin to step beyond what convention says that we're supposed to believe, we're going to get a reaction. So we shouldn't be surprised that what we're reading about here, if we look at what it means that's relevant to you and I today, that we are supposed to know. We're supposed to realize that if we preach the truth, we will be slain. Again, we don't process the Christian life in these terms. But the truth is we too will become a sacrifice. Most of you know that Misty Edwards, lots and lots of folks listen to her music And several years ago, when she was diagnosed with cancer, and it went away, and then it came back, and she asked her mom and dad and brother and sister that none of them, no one, no friend, no pastor, Mike Bickle, or anyone else, come to the hospital when she was having that surgery. She didn't want anybody there when she woke up. She didn't want anybody there when they did the first chemo treatment the following day. She didn't want anybody there to go with her to any chemotherapy treatment. And we would say, well, how selfish. Why would she do it? What could be the motivation for something that seems so random and so extreme to us? Well, Misty has been convinced since she was very young that she would die a martyr. That her life would be taken for the word of God. And she told Don and Robert, she said, I need to know in this moment that when I am the most alone and the most afraid, the most insecure in preparation for that day, I need to face this day with only him. When you recognize that she goes to Jerusalem to sing and she performs there and you realize that becomes more and more possible all the time. Well, this is the part of the Christian life that we have kind of removed. We've removed the ugly side, the painful side of the Christian story. But I believe the scripture tells us that it will be part of our story. I believe there have already been many who have died for their faith. I believe that there will be many more to stand and to teach and to preach the things of God are not even acceptable anymore. They're scorned and they're shunned and they're ridiculed. So we have seen within our lifetime a major shift toward what happens when someone speaks and teaches the truth. The generation of our high school and college students today, we are the first generation, my generation, that is a generation of consumers. My mother's generation, the one right ahead of me, their first thought was, can I make it or can I grow it? Our thought is, can we buy it? And we as adult consumers have taught our children to be consumers. So what do consumers do? They shop. So what have we taught our children to do? 
even with the things of God. We taught them to shop. It has become kind of a chronic reality that we have raised a new generation of consumers who are very acute and well advanced in the shopping. You know, I've got some good friends that met on Match.com, but what are you actually doing? You're shopping, looking for that partner. And you want the most information that you can get so that you can be a better consumer and make sure that whatever you buy, you like. So we've done it in personal relationships, and I can assure you we have done it with God. The fact that there's an extreme amount of idolatry around a youth culture, that we very strangely have discounted the value of an older generation and our ability to share and to teach something to a new generation, to actually impart to them something that is more profound and deeper than their experiences can take them so far. You look at the churches that are growing in extreme numbers, the image is young. Young pastor, young people on the stage performing, because there is an extreme amount of idolatry around that youth culture. And we move that way because it becomes acceptable and popular when we hold to truth. It becomes very unpopular and it brings what we're talking about here. It brings the persecution. And so I don't think that we should ever remove away from our story the possibility of persecution for the truth that we stand for. Again, our recent history is proving it. It has now been many years since Columbine. And someone standing up and saying, I believe in God, I have my faith is in Jesus Christ, and to be killed for it. We can make that an isolated situation. But what does those two boys represent? Do we think that the culture that formed them began with them? No. From those two, we begin to look at what's happening above them, and we recognize there's a whole tree of beliefs and people and connections that hold the same beliefs as that those two young men acted out. It wasn't isolated. There was a culture behind that. So again, we should not remove. We shouldn't, according to this, imagine there won't be a price that's paid for our faith. Jan and I had a picture framed. It was a picture that Helen Ellison brought into the office, but it was this church, and the church was all outside lined up for this photograph because they had just given uh, Brother Harden a new car. <laughs> it was interesting to see, and we talked about it. Elaine, I think, was the one that said, you know, that was their life. That was how they socialized. That's where they heard about what was happening. It was centered around church. Well, that day's largely gone, where they would hear that difficult, hard preaching that those men did and be faithful to it day after day. So I think that the people that John saw that were under that altar, the blood being the life that was sacrificed, I don't think that we should be terribly shocked to believe that that could be us. People will say evil things about us and slay us with words and with demeaning attitudes that's already occurring. Those who proclaim truth and live it have to be dead to every form of evil. So I believe this portrays our death to sin that would allow us to live the witness that we're supposed to live. Dead because of the word of God, dead because of the witness that each of us holds. So I put in my notes, these are people who are not led by the dictates of man, but by the still small voice of the Holy Spirit.
Who is more likely to persecute us? If I draw those two categories, Christians who are led by the dictates of men versus a group that is led by the voice of the Holy Spirit and Him in us, who is likely to become our greatest opponent? Christians that are led by the dictates of men. So immediately when you remove the Holy Spirit from teaching, again, there's a lot of folks who have knowledge of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of people who have some knowledge of body, soul, and spirit. But I want to tell you, having knowledge of it, I would prefer that you know nothing of it than to have knowledge of both and not have experience that comes with that knowledge. That knowledge will convict you. That knowledge will condemn you. If you know it, if you know about these things, if you know about the work of the Holy Spirit, and you don't allow yourself to move from knowledge to experience, that knowledge will condemn you. I had a conversation with a man about three weeks ago as he was beginning to tell me some of the things he was learning about body, soul, and spirit. And I said, well, good luck, because that learning will get you in a great deal of trouble. And he said, yeah, I know what you're talking about. He said, I went and tried to talk to my dad about this. And he said, he was terribly upset with me that I was learning this stuff. That was the first conversation. The second conversation, I said, please, don't just learn it in your head. Learn it in the experience of the truth. And he assured me, and he gave me several examples that that's exactly what was happening. And it was interesting to watch that truth emerge. But I guarantee you, he will find himself disconnected from some of the people he's been the closest to because of truth. When we begin to be led by the Holy Spirit, it will be very strange that we can't use the old defenses that we once used. I can't say, well, I'm going to this church or to this church. I'm doing this because I have a responsibility there. I am involved there. They depend on me there. I want to tell you, none of that will hold water when you begin to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit might ask you to act completely opposite to the logic that's in your head. What were the chances that Jesus would have been born had Mary approached the question logically? Wouldn't have happened. What would have happened had logic ruled the day? Well, she would have answered to the angel, there's no way, because, you know, she said it. I don't even know a man. I've never physically been with a man. And the angel answered her. And she said, behold the handmaid of the Lord, here I am. Do in me, through me, to me, whatever's necessary. But if, if that hadn't happened, if logic would have ruled the day, she would have walked away and she said, man, I don't know what that was all about. What happens when logic rules our day? We find ourselves serving in places wondering why there is no supernatural reality to the actions we're taking. Because you will not find them. According to the dictates of man, you will find them only by the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is just the truth. Let me go back and read verse 10. So maybe the altar is the brazen altar. That's the imagery. Maybe those who were slain for the word of God are those who have chosen to follow the dictates of the Holy Spirit instead of the dictates of man. And we are slain in numerous, numerous ways. But here's verse 10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? You know, I have heard this more in the last five years than I've ever heard it in my life. With people saying, God, how long? How long are you going to let this go on? How long is this going to continue? Because there seems to be a cry from that group 
the group that has been sacrificed, there seems to be a cry for justice. What will be done to those who have made his children suffer? So here we see people who have become a living sacrifice asking God to pour out wrath upon those who brought the affliction. When we could ask ourselves, does that sound like God? Well, it doesn't when we make it in those terms, but God will always be a God of justice. When you take away that this scene is not unfolding in heaven, this brazen altar that doesn't describe a situation in heaven, it describes a situation that happens on earth. The brazen altar is where the sacrifice is made. That's not in heaven. We're talking about an earthly situation. So if we get that, it begins to be much easier to understand the truth. The fact that these people are under the altar, yet crying with a loud voice, tells us that they are a living sacrifice. This is Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What does that mean, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice? What happens when we give something over as a sacrifice? What happens? Ownership transfers. And that which we once held to be ours is now consumed by someone else. That's reasonable, it says, for you and I to present ourselves before God as a living sacrifice. Where does that occur? That's not heaven someday. That's a living sacrifice right now. That was Paul writing to this church in Rome, telling them this should be expected. This is your reasonable service. And then it says in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you could prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There aren't many scriptures in the Bible packed with more truth. But we cannot remove that phrase and it be the same truth. If we remove that phrase that that we would present our bodies as a living sacrifice and that that body would be holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service, the scripture changes if you remove that description. In Revelations 12.12, we read that there are three levels upon which people dwell. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, And of the seal for the devil has come down unto you, having a great wrath, because he knows that he hath but a short time. So we understand that there are those in heaven, described here as Christians who are living in the mind of Christ. Those on the earth, Christians who are still being ruled by the natural mind. And the sea, the multitudes who have no knowledge of God. So we get this. This is a truth that I wish we would accept, that the carnal mind... A believer who thinks like a non-believer, always opposed to what the spiritual mind will tell. Always. Why? Because the natural mind wants to make logic out of it, reasoning out of it, certainty out of it. And the spirit mind says, I will obey when there is no reason. I will do in obedience what I see to do. I'll speak what I'm told to speak, even when it's not reasonable. I've been in one of those times... When God is revealing truth to me like I open the book and it comes. To have been deceived from somebody's teaching about this woman at the well and what Jesus was really dealing with. 
to understand for the first time what the Lord's Supper is really about. I know this may sound weird, but I went back and listened to that sermon myself. I wanted to know what God said, because when it's coming out of my mouth, sometimes I miss it. And I went back and I listened to that, and I'm hearing it, and it's like, even then it brought more clarity, listening to my own voice that God had spoken, recognizing what the Lord's Supper is really all about, that I'd never seen before. And I love that reality. I love how he does it. The ones under the altar, Christians, who are living in the mind of Christ, and they're going to be put to death, sacrificed, by the Christians who are still ruled by their carnal minds and by the multitudes who have no knowledge of God. Don't be surprised. What you believe, because if you're sitting here, you believe something different than what the typical Christian believes. I wish that weren't true, but it's the truth. If you're sitting here believing body, soul, and spirit, by one fact you're believing something that most of the general population of the Christian world does not believe. If you believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's certainly more that believe that, but still the majority do not. If you believe that God speaks, you're back down into a very small group of Christians who actually believe that. That God interacts with us personally and wants something personal with us. If you believe that the basis of the church, according to Matthew, is not Jesus, though he's the cornerstone, that's what what Jesus is talking about. When he's talking about Peter, he says, upon this rock, this Petros, I will build my church on this bedrock, Petros, that that is revelation, and that we are to be a people of revelation, watching for God to uncover truth that we've never seen before. That will allow us to hold the keys to the kingdom, to bind and to loose. That doesn't it in any way remove Jesus from the story. It actually elevates him to the right place where he's supposed to be, So that we would understand that we, as a church, are always going to move according to the revelation. Who has to give us that revelation? He does. As the one who is speaking, doing, giving that revelation. We see this and shouldn't be surprised. This whole section of this fifth seal exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ. He lived truth and he spoke truth. Yet what happened... What did the religious establishment do? They hated him. They plotted against him. The brightness of his truth would outshine their legality, their religion. Their hate was only satisfied by the most inhumane death ever imagined or ever possible. Hate has no compassion in it. Similarly, all who speak truth, you think that truth has become more popular? Well, the version we tell has, the version he told brought a revolution. He's now telling people who have been married for years and years and years that the basis of relationships is no longer tradition. The basis of a family, the basis of a relationship between a husband and wife is love. All the rules about why he wasn't supposed to be talking to the Samaritan woman, because she was a woman, because she was a Samaritan, because she was a woman that had been scorned, because she was there by herself. The fact that he would elevate her to a place of importance, the disciples came back and thinking, what in the world are you doing? Do you not understand what you're doing? He was changing everything by the truth that he was speaking. And I want to tell you, pastors have become terribly safe in the proclaiming of truth. Because I don't want to say it in such a way that would offend you. Well, I want to tell you, 
If I'm speaking what the Spirit gives and you're receiving what the Spirit allows you to receive because I'm speaking spirit to spirit, it will not offend you. Your spirit will bear witness with truth. But if I start dancing up here trying to make this truth acceptable to someone who is not in the spirit, then I will start trying to sell something and adopt something and change something so that somebody else will buy it. And I'm already sunk. I might as well step down off the podium if I'm going to do it. Why would God wait until I was 50 to call me to be a pastor like this? Because every year before that, I would have pandered to the congregation trying to build a big church, trying to be a popular pastor, trying to imagine what the next church I'm going to would be like. I don't have any of that. I don't have any desire to be outside of where God put me. And until he changes his mind, he put me here. And I'm so, so grateful that this is the place where I get to serve. Don't be surprised if we're hated when we tell the truth. That next part of the verse. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The question is not will you, the question is when will you? Profound truth involved in this question. God must judge evil because he is good. We think it's going unnoticed. We think it's going unpunished. Please don't kid yourself. The goodness of God is not a eye blinking or winking at the evil that's going on. It will be punished. There will be a reconciling moment for it. He is good and he's just. His goodness requires justice. If God smiled at sin, he would not be holy and he would not be just. Again, it's a a man's misguided ego that makes him think that he can get away with sinful acts. Lies have become that person's truth. Judgment is necessary so that humanity can be redeemed. God's judgments are always redemptive every single time. If you're going through something, every single time it is designed to bring us into this redemptive plan. Every time. His judgments are based on truth. They are necessary because otherwise humanity would not recognize the errors of where it goes and the error of its ways. So the question they ask is, how long, O Lord? How long will it be until humanity recognizes that the Lamb is truly the ruler? Would you like to know that? I don't know if I want to know how long, but I sure am looking forward to the day. When you, there's this look on people's face and they say, oh my goodness, it's, it was true. It was true. What day is that going to be? The day it's too late. The rapture will have occurred. I'll end with this story. In the Old Testament, there's an account of King Saul's activities. The beastly nature of humanity is exemplified by these men, the Edomites. After King Saul was told that the priest had helped David to escape, he ordered the soldiers to kill these 85 priests, and the soldiers wouldn't do it. But there was one man, this man, Dog, the Edomite, who stepped up and said, I'll do it. He mercilessly killed those 85 priests, and butchered all who lived in the city of Nob, the city of priests. He killed all the women. He killed all the children. He killed all the infants. He killed the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep. Only one priest, only he escaped. When David heard about this terrible act, he wrote Psalm 52, and he asked, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? He didn't say, God, why did you allow this to happen? He understood 
the question is, you have a lot of nerve boasting in what you have done. Do you not know what you have done? The thought uppermost in his mind was, how does man expect to get away with all this wickedness? How can man be so foolish? Man, I'm, I ask that question of myself, not looking at myself. I ask that of things I see today. How can we be so foolish as to believe God's not paying attention? That somehow we're getting by with something. Or that God, that something is not unfolding the way it's supposed to unfold. David knew that God would judge him. Vengeance is mine. We, we like to quote that. That was God's. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen. Knowing and believing this truth can save us from a lot of bitterness, resentment, and desire for revenge. Newspapers and books and televisions are filled with the frightening, unrighteous deeds of our society. We know it. We see it. And of our governments. And our hearts cry out, How long, O Lord, until the world will know that the Lamb is actually reigning? And that there's always been a plan that's been in place. Knowing that vengeance belongs to God, we can honestly pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That should be our heart. Verse 11, And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. When we step in a couple of weeks into Revelation 7, this is where we find the seventh seal. In between seal number 6 and seal number 7, we get the numbering of the 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Who will be the next group after us to be extremely persecuted? These 144,000 of Revelation 7. I think this is speaking of them, that now we're beginning to understand when it was told to John, you'll see things yet to come. We're at a point now where the history is catching up and we're about to step into prophetic things. That selection of those 144,000 Jews we get to read about in Matthew 25. Who are they? When we read about in Matthew 25, 31, one of the most poorly taught, irresponsibly taught scriptures because it says at the beginning in verse 31 when Jesus comes in all his glory he's going to separate the sheep from the goats when he separates them he's going to say to the sheep you saw me hungry and you fed me you saw me naked and you clothed me you saw me in prison and you came and visited me and they're going to say back when did we see you naked and clothed you hungry and fed you when did we see you in prison and come and visit and he said just as you've done unto the least of these my brethren You've done it unto me. I hear that taught all the time as, the, as a Christian mantra for today. Take care of the poor. Take care of them in prison. Now I can teach you that from another place, but that is not what that scripture says. When Jesus comes in all his glory, when is that? We have to use that point of reference. When is that? That's at the end of the seven years of tribulation. We're gone. We left, I believe, seven years earlier. If we didn't, it's still okay. It doesn't mess up the story. Who are these, the least of these, my brethren? Who is it? Because if you, it, the way I teach it anyway, and you can adjust this however you want to, but if, if we're raptured and the Holy Spirit goes with us, and the story for Israel, which is supposed to be accomplished in those last seven years, is that the Holy Spirit will deal with them as the Holy Spirit dealt with them in the Old Testament, to come upon them but not be in them. And we get to read in Revelation 7 that 144,000 Jewish evangelists 
are going to be loose on the face of the earth during that tribulation period. How are you going to be saved? Because you can be. But we would never teach, I hope, that you would be saved according to Matthew 25, 31 and after. What makes me acceptable to God is, did I take care of the prisoners? Did I take care of the hungry? I would never teach you that that's the way you became pleasing to God. I would teach you about faith. I would teach you about belief. I would teach you about His blood. I would teach you about righteousness. That's the way salvation has come to us. But in that chapter, salvation came to them because the way they treated the least of these, my brethren. So who are they? The 144,000 Jews. If you believe their message, if you don't believe their message, it's a question of faith. I believe what it's telling us here is that we will wait until those are killed. I think we see that in the unfolding chapters that are just now ahead of us. We will be given a white robe. But we will be asked to wait until those who are also going to be killed will have an opportunity to join us. My mind can go to a lot of places and do a lot of things with this. But I think it's interesting that at the end of the tribulation that we get to read about in Revelation 19, that Jesus is riding out of heaven and those who are following were dressed in white. I can say that that's angels, but it is interesting to me that on that day, at that point of the tribulation and in in, when Jesus is coming out of heaven, coming on this white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords, and this army following him, that it will not only be them, but it will be us and those who have died, get, given their lives in that great tribulation, and that we will come into the valley of Megiddo with God, with Jesus, and watch what he does. I think we're going to be amazed when we may say how long, But when we see it, I think we're going to be so awestruck that we can't even imagine what we're seeing. That God's wrath will be what the scripture says it is. The white robes are representing the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we were given to everyone who was under the altar. The fact that we are under the altar means we've already submitted or we've already been sacrificed. Just as Jesus willingly gave himself to be sacrificed, we also will be asked. Give up our life for his God has a plan and everything is subject to that plan. When the time was fulfilled, God sent his son. And when the time is fulfilled, the revelation of Jesus, Christ's righteous reign, will take place. This is a message that the Lord gives us. We went last night to that event at at Movie 16. I think the name of it was By Our Hands. It was the story of the Six-Day War. What amazed me the most was how few soldiers were involved in that six-day war. Now, I don't know how many there were in the taking of the Sinai Peninsula, but in the taking of the old Jerusalem, the inner city, you know, we're not talking about huge battalions. We're talking about divisions of men where there were less than 200, and there were only three divisions that were involved, probably 500 or less men. Matter of fact, when they gave the total, I imagine the total was probably less than 300. Actually took the city. They hadn't been in the, in, in the inner city since 1947 or 48. Re-entered it in 1967. It was the first time they'd been to the Wailing Wall in all those years. But I want to tell you what, what was amazing was that they didn't know when they were going into the inner city that the Jordanians had already left. There was only a handful of them left to give any resistance because you can look at this and say that was circumstance, not according to the scripture. That's the providence of God. The plan's working. You may not believe it, but the plan's working. 
when the documentary started, it showed what happened in the late 40s when they were removed from the inner city. And there were only 200 Israeli fighters holding off all of that Jordanian army. And when they finally took the inner city, there were only 35 of those 200 left. And the king of Jordan was so embarrassed that he kind of gathered up every able-bodied man who could walk, boys and men, so that it would look like there was a great resistance. Because there was only 35 of them at the end who were holding off this army. It was amazing. You realize God's plan won't be altered. I think that's good news. We may not understand what we're seeing, but God does. And I'm really, really glad. Lord, thank you for how you bring this to us. Lord, we know that there is so much truth in this scripture, undeniably, unquestionably beyond what we're describing here. But I pray, Lord, that you are showing us the relevance of what it means to us today, because we have lost largely even the thought of sacrifice. We have grown comfortable, amazingly comfortable in the lives that we live. But Lord, you have made it beyond clear that we have no life. It was given up. At that brazen altar, our lives were taken that yours could live through us. We will suffer for the truth we tell. We may not be popular or or wanted, but it doesn't change the truth we tell. It didn't for you, and I pray, Lord, that it won't for us, that we would tell the truth without counting the cost of. Thank you, Lord, again for this teaching, the wisdom that is expressed through this truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.